Good morning, everyone. Welcome to From the Deep End for this June 14th is what it is already. Man, middle of June. Uh, thank you for tuning in, being a part of the program today. Always appreciate your um, uh, being with me uh, all these mornings that we're here together. We are here every Monday through Thursday from 8 a.m. Eastern to 10 a.m. Eastern for those who may be new to the program. Uh, and uh, this is just a two-hour Bible study that we do together. We divide it into two sections. Uh, first half, we simply call conversation. And anything that is on your mind, um, you are allowed to uh, put those questions into the uh, the comment area, uh, into the chat, whatever social media platform that you are on. I believe we are on Facebook, YouTube, and on um, uh, Podbean this morning. And you are allowed to put that in. Um Textual question, topical question, um, maybe a cultural or societal type question. Whatever happens to be on your mind this morning will be uh, 100% fine. Uh, as always, though, I do reserve the right to say I don't know uh, at any point because that's entirely possible that I may not know the answer to your question. Uh, but I, tr I try my best to at least give you something, e even if it is something that I don't have a definitive answer for. Um, Maybe at least I can point you into a portion of the text that will um, uh, start you down the right path so you can do some further investigation on your own uh, and uh, happy to do that to the best of my ability. Um, and, uh, you know, when we talked yesterday morning about the 70 weeks out of Daniel 9, and I can tell you that was not something that I anticipated talking about yesterday morning when I woke up and started prepping for the program. Uh, it was not, um, not at all that will, that, uh, Something that I had intended to um, um, to cover, but nevertheless, um, we did as best as I could. Anyway, it was a good discussion. Um, ended up taking just about the entire hour um, just to say what what is there. Um, but um, uh, it was good. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for the uh, for the opportunity to have uh, to done that to to have done that with you. And that's what we do for the first hour. Is just whatever is on your mind. Um, we um, we um, uh, cover it and we go from there. And so that is what we did. Um, and we'll do that again this morning. So if you have any Bible questions, you can go ahead and put those into the comment section and we'll get that taken care of uh, shortly. Um, in the uh, second hour of the program, as is our practice, we uh, have a, uh, a set Bible study, usually a textual study. Uh, we'll maybe throw some topical things in there as we go along, but I think so far, uh, in the 10 months or so that we've been doing this program, uh, it has all been, uh, it's more like eight or nine months that we've been doing this program. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's all been uh, um, uh, uh, textual so far, but we're, we're in the book of First Peter, uh, and we are the fifth lesson that we've had on that uh, 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 good book, and we are still uh, squarely in the early parts of chapter one. So if you're just tuning in and joining us for that for that particular um, uh, study, um we are still uh, in a position where you can easily follow along with us uh, from that point forward. So uh, looking forward to continuing uh, that study along with you um, throughout the uh, um, um, 
uh, throughout the uh, throughout the, throughout the uh, morning and morning. So I was just, sorry, I was just looking over there at the comment section, see what was going on over there. Um, but that that's what we'll be doing today on on digital Bible study. We do have a one uh, programming adjustment, uh, and that is that uh, Truth Tuesday, which comes on at the ten o'clock hour, uh, is not going to be on this morning. I think um, I'm not mistaken. I think Daryl is prepping for a surgery that's coming up. You know, Daryl has. Uh, been in and out of the, uh, having surgery in and out of the hospital for, for quite a while now. And so keep Daryl in your prayers. Uh, but I, Truth Tuesday from the conversation I had, saw them having, um, overnight, uh, looks like they were going to have to call off the program this morning. Uh, so, uh, keep Daryl in your prayers, uh, for all that he has going on, uh, with, with uh, with his health conditions. So, um, uh, I don't think there's anything urgent or you know, anything, I don't see any bad development. I think it's just a surgery that he's been waiting to have for a while. So hopefully uh, that will go through well. And uh, just anyway, keep Daryl in your prayers and the whole gang over there from the Truth Tuesday crowd. Uh, other than that, I think we are set to go for the rest of the of the day. Uh, Tony Brewer and Aaron Dotson will be on at the um, uh, 11 o'clock hour for uh, Christianity Now and their, their show that they do together. And then Paul Mays will be on, I believe, at 1 o'clock for um, uh, the, fruit of, the Fruit of My Lips. Uh, and then we will have the Connect session tonight at 7 p.m. Um, Tony Brewer is actually going to be hosting that for us, or he's conducting it for us. He's normally on at 8, but since we have the Spanish language gospel meeting going on this week, I decided to move Tony up an hour and just give him the 7 o'clock slot. Uh, so Tony will be conducting the Connect um, uh, session for us tonight at 7. And then, as has been mentioned, or as I just mentioned a second ago, we are continuing the Spanish language uh, gospel meeting um, at eight o'clock and nine o'clock Eastern. So an absolutely full day of, um, of, um, um, uh, a Bible study here together on, on a digital Bible study. Uh, looking forward to it. Had a pretty good response from the, uh, for, for the Spanish language, uh, lessons last night. Uh, I think we peaked out at around 30, uh, con con concurrent connections, which is not a lot, but considering we are an English language site, uh, I was really pleased with that. I thought that was outstanding. Um, and so spread the word. If you know some Spanish uh, speaking individuals, of course, those lessons are available on our Facebook and YouTube page. Uh, so they, they can go back and, and catch, catch up with what's going on. But, um, hmm, uh, thank you. Uh, but, uh, turn them on, tune them into the night as well, because we've got, um, uh, we've got three more nights of it, so six more hours, six more lessons coming for, from from the good brethren that are working, doing that work together. Uh, and I'm sure Marlon will have uh, the, the post ready to share here in just a little bit uh, for today. So that's what's coming up today. Busy day on Digital Bible Study. I, I like busy days here. That means things are going along well. Uh, it would seem to indicate that we're getting a lot of stuff done uh, here together, and I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative of all of the good brethren who, who help out and come on and, and teach day after day. Uh, you know, Eric and I get a lot of praise, a lot of credit for doing this, but we couldn't do it the way that we do without the 150, 160 different guys that we have used uh, to, to help uh, teach these sessions. So uh, they they deserve a lot of thanks as well because they they um, um, they are integral to the to the work here. So let's turn our attention to uh, any questions that we have over there. Um, uh, Teresa has one. Um, she asked a uh, question. What about having in instruments of instruments mice in, in Sunday school? Well, it's, instrumental mice in Sunday school, I don't have a problem with, Teresa. 
I'm, I'm assuming you mean instrumental music in 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 in, in the in the Bible class program. Um, you know what what you do with the mice in your church building that's entirely up to you. I don't I don't think that God has any any statement about what goes on with the uh, with the mice <laughs> there. Um, but uh, what about instrumental music in in classroom settings? Um, there are brethren who disagree on this this point, uh, uh, um, Teresa, and it's a good question. Um, the The passages that speak of um, music in the New Testament, okay, um, there are. I think I'm doing this again off the top of my head here, but I'm doing this. Uh, um, I think there are twelve. I think there are twelve overall verses in the New Testament that talk about music, um, and not a one of them mentions the instrument of music um, um there is one in revelation uh that talks about there being harps or something of that nature in heaven but i mean it's heaven there are no it's it's, it's symbolic i doubt very seriously there are actual harps in 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 heaven um but um other than that the, the instrument's just not included in, anywhere in the new testament uh and you know sometimes uh Brethren, um, or say brethren, well, sometimes brethren, but brethren want to bring the instrument in, go through great lengths to try and say why, why that, you know, we're just being pharisaical, legalistic, or whatever terms they like to use um, in, in noting that. But the fact is, there are no instruments of music in the New Testament worship. I mean, that's just a demonstrable fact. You can read through the New Testament cover to cover. Start with, particularly start with Acts two when the when the worship of the church begins, and go through the rest of the epistles while the church is here on earth. Okay, you want to make the case that I think it's Revelation fourteen, is it? Uh, I think there's there's a harp mentioned in 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 Revelation fourteen. I think it's like first one or two. Um, okay, that's that's at best that's the church in heaven. I don't think it is. I think there's another meaning to that text, but at best that's the church in heaven. Okay. Great. When I get to heaven, if there's a harp, well, I, I hopefully I'll know how to play it if there is one, because I don't know how to play one here, so it wouldn't do me any good. But maybe, maybe with eternity, I can learn to play a harp. But it'd be some bad music for a long time before <laughs> before uh, uh, I get I get sufficiently good to do it. I suppose though, um, and if I'm mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, I think in Revelation 14, it is. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it, it is a verse two. The, the voice I heard was the, like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Okay. And so it, it doesn't even technically say um, there was harp. It was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So that may not even be, you know, it's, it's, it's symbolic at best. So, okay. Aside from that, you can go cover to cover in the New Testament. There's no instrument mentioned. It's not there. All right. Now you can argue that, that it's acceptable in worship. Okay, but you're arguing from nothing. You have no text, right? That that that's the starting point. Sometimes we, you know, we have this discussion with with people who want the instrument, and we don't start there. We start kind of from the existing practice that hey, you know, it's it's the hey everybody does it kind of mentality, right? Everybody, every every church out there has it. Okay. Well, that's not always been the case. And I haven't forgotten the actual question here, uh, Teresa. I'm going to come back to it. Um, that's not actually the, the case. Um, it was not always the case uh, that um, uh, all the churches have it, have had it. Um, 
it, it's actually not not the case at all. Um, the the word uh, acapella actually means something along the lines of ah is the the, the particle there of negation. So without, uh, but but the the, the the capella is in the uh, in the chapel or choir style. Um, it was the kind of music that was done in the chapels in the churches. That that was the kind, uh, and there are all kind of quotes from. From uh, even some of the very early Protestant re reformers uh, that that say, you know, I think it was I'll have to look these up. Um, and, uh, John Wesley, uh, I think it's, is it John, one of the Wesley guys, um, has a great quote about. Um, 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 I'm, I'm doing a quick Google search here, right, right, right here. Um, uh, see if I can find it real quick. Um, um, yeah, the, the 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 quote that is attributed to him. Now, some people who are for the instrument dispute the uh, dispute the quote, but the quote that is attributed to him is, "I have no objection to instruments of music in our worship, provided they are neither seen nor heard." Okay. So take the legitimacy of that if you will, but and, and you know it's 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 not the case. Okay, and and whether you believe in the validity of the quote or not, it is not the case that historically all churches had instruments of music. They didn't. All right, um, and again, the reason is very simple. Go to the actual text, and, and don't don't try to prove to me that you can fit. Uh, or, or don't try to prove to me that Ephesians 5.18 doesn't exclude the instrument or, or does exclude the instrument or however you want to phrase that. Um, don't, don't try to prove to me that Colossians 3 uh, allows for the instrument. All right, don't do that. James 5 talks about a brother singing if he's, if he, if he's, if, if, if he's uh, cheerful. No mention of any instrument. Okay, uh, they were singing hymns in, in, in prison in Philippi. No mention of the instrument, uh, and so on. There's no mention of it anywhere. That's where we need to start. You need to find me a text which authorizes the use. Where is it? It's not there. So the only argument you have is that it's a matter of expedience. And and uh, I actually wrote an article was posted on the website digitalbiblestudy.org about the expediency of the of the instrument in worship and why I think that argument falls on its face because that's not actually what they're after. Now, they don't actually think it is an expedient to worship. Um, they just use that as a convenience to get the, the, the discussion started. So number one, I don't believe it is just an expedient. And number two, that's not the argument you're making. You're not making, you're not making an argument for expediency. You're making an argument for author, authorized. It is authorized in worship. Okay. Those are two separate arguments, and I'm not going to let you claim, argue the one and then claim the rights of the other. All right. Uh, and the reason I say that is if, it, it, if the if the instrument is simply an expedient to uh, to worship, then why do you play it during the Lord's Supper? Why do you play it during the announcements? Why do you play it during your quote unquote altar calls? Why do you play it when there's no singing going on? And that's what they do. As soon as the instruments get into the assembly, they don't just use it for, for accompaniment for a song. All right. And, and, it, and it's not simple. 
orchestration. It's not simple ar arrangements that, that help maybe for singing in a, in a four-part harmony that, that, that maybe uh, uh, plays along so the, the different parts can, can, can hear what they're supposed to be singing. No, it's not simple accompaniment that's expediting the singing. It's full-out bands, full-out orchestras that are directing the singing. They're not expediting the singing. They are controlling the singing. And then beyond that, you play the instruments throughout the entire service. As I just said, you play it during prayers, you play it during communion, you play it during the sermons, you play it during the, the call to worship, you play it as people are exiting. You play the instruments from start to finish, well outside periods of singing. So do not try to sell me that you think this is an expedient. It's not. That is a disingenuous argument, and I have no time or stomach for it. All right? Now, Having said that, having said that, what about in a classroom? I assume when you say instrument of music in Sunday school, uh, now Teresa, you'd be in trouble in my household, at least my daddy's household. Okay, he didn't like the term Sunday school. You'd have to ask him. Ask him on Thursday. We weren't allowed to say Sunday school. It was Bible class. Okay, <laughs> but I assume that when you mention that, you are um uh, addressing perhaps that of uh, probably the younger age groups uh and so on um i will say that the arguments you make out of ephesians 5 and colossians 3 it is a one another event speaking to one another in psalms hymns and spiritual psalms that that is how we get to the point or one of the ways in which we get to the point of making the argument that this is worship that this is a congregational this passage includes worship because we are together i'm not by myself singing and so on this is a period where the church has come together and we are having that one another experience that seems to indicate the worship period whatever that be and obviously they they didn't have the hard distinctions at least we, as far as we know they didn't have the hard distinctions between bible classes and, and worship and and so on but clearly it is a one another environment um also, when you're dealing with children, children are not technically part of the church at all. Uh, they're not sa saved by the blood of Jesus Christ through baptism. They're, they're, as, as I've heard preachers describe them, they're safe. They don't have the moral accountability to sin. So you're not, they are not technically worshiping. Worship is intentional. You have to come together to worship, um, or at least corporate worship. You have to come together with that intent. Uh, Genesis 22, a great example of that with Abraham and Isaac. Um, but so they are not technically part of the church and they are not technically worshiping. They're being trained. Now, in a training environment, I believe there's a lot more freedom, a lot more uh, uh, flexibility there, because, again, there, there are very few verses that deal with that with that setting. But you do have several examples of things being done in Scripture that help to train individuals. Uh, probably the best one that you could come across is that concept of when the disciples come and ask Jesus, teach us to pray. Okay, Jesus offers a prayer that if you just read it, sounds like a prayer offered to God. And in the middle of it, he, he asks God to forgive us, which would include him, the one offering the prayer, of our sins. Well, obviously, Jesus didn't have any to forgive. I mean, this, this is not a prayer that actually was offered to God. It was a prayer that was recited in the presence of students 
for them to, to learn. Oh, that is an example of training, not worship, right? That, that, that example is all the way in scripture. And there are all kinds of things we do in training, learning how to do something that are that is never offered to God as an act of worship. Um, I have, I can't tell you how many times I have, uh, well, I don't have a, a piano in the house now, but when the kids were growing up, they were all in chorus and that they were engaged in those things. We had a piano in the house, okay? Um, I can't tell you how many times I was trying to learn a song um, and, and I can't really play the piano, but I can go over there and tap the notes out to, 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 to hear the melody of a song. And, and, and I would do that. Okay, how's this little part of the song go? And I'd go to the piano and tap out the notes so I could hear how that, how that portion of the, of the melody of the song went so that, so that I could lead it. Okay, technically an instrument of music. And I was singing along to the instrument of music, but it was never intended as worship. That was not an act of worship offered to God. I was trying to teach and to train myself how to do so. Um, in that, in that instance, I don't know that I could prove here, how, hear how I'm going to say this. I don't know that I could prove that the instrument would be wrong in a training environment for children. Um, just as I don't, I don't think when we are doing VBS and we're doing the hand clapping and all that stuff that goes along with the song, which I would not argue for, I would not want to see in the, in the worship assembly. We're still just, we're training children and we do things that are not intended as acts of worship to God. Um, so I don't know that I could prove, again, hear how I say this. I don't know that I could prove that it's wrong. Okay. Um, my judgment on the matter would be not to do it because I do not want to affiliate, associate the use of the instrument with the attendance at, at worship. Okay, I, I, if, if it were a, a standard practice uh, in, in our Bible classes, I think we would be uh, uh, training children to expect there to be instruments as a part of their devotional time, which would ultimately, you know, or training time rather, which would ultimately, you know, grow into a worship period. I believe they would uh, uh, begin to associate those and it would be hard to convince them otherwise. So while I don't know that I could prove that it's wrong, uh, my judgment, my strong judgment would be not to um, not to make use of it because of the precedent that I believe it would set. Um, and so that that's that's my answer to it, is that um, um, if I'm just going strictly by the, the confines of the text, I don't know that Ephesians five, <clears throat> Ephesians five and Colossians three was ever intended to cover the training of children in the ways of God, okay? And so therefore, since I don't know that that's the scope of the passage, I would have a hard time applying those verses into that setting. Um, however, I don't, at the very best, I don't think it would be wise. Um, and, and I'm trying to be nice there when I say it that way. I, I, I would greatly prefer it not be done. Um, now, if it, if it happened on a one-off case, if there was something that a teacher needed, I probably wouldn't raise a stink about it. But, you know, sometimes what happens is we, uh, we come across this great curriculum, this great material, and we use it uh, because, well, man, look, look, it's so pretty. It's so slick. It's got all the pictures. It's got, and the teachers love how much, you know, frankly, it's, it's all the whole thing's laid out for them. And then there'll be, a, a, well, 
you know, I'm not saying a cassette. That's how old I am. <laughs> There'll be, you know, cassette or a CD. Both of those don't happen anymore. Uh, there'll be some kind of QR code that you can scan and get, get the music for, for, for the lesson. And, it, and it's just all integrated. And we end up effectively using denominational material to teach our children. I'm not, I'm not a fan of that. Uh, I, I don't know. No, we may not have the, the, the nice, slick, polished stuff, but uh, we can do better. Oh, I forgot to put the, the chat up this morning. So y'all can see what y'all were saying to each other. Let me go ahead and do that right now. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I, that would be my... That would be my strong preference on it. So um, anyway, let me let me go scroll on down here. I think there are a couple of follow up questions with that. Um, um, music and PowerPoint. Um, again, Teresa, I'd have the same same issues. Now, if you've if you've brought it into um, uh, you know you're using a PowerPoint in a sermon or even you know a Bible class or a sermon. Now you've brought it perhaps into the <laughs> Christine said at least you didn't say a track. Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, now you've probably brought it into the assembly and, you know, I'm going to have an issue with that. Now I would not have an issue. I, I would not have an issue if, um, um, if as a part of a lesson or maybe even as a part of a sermon, if, if, if the preacher is, you know, uh, um, kind of like what, uh, 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 Tony and Aaron are doing in their, um, in their, in their Christianity now show, uh, the, the, kind of the, the format of the program is they're finding some of the clips that, that are on TikTok and elsewhere online of just some of the things that are being taught in churches right now. And so they, they take a two or three minute clip of a, of a denominational sermon, they put it up on the screen, they play it so everybody can hear it, and then they review it as they go through their program. Okay, I would, I would, I would not want that to make that a staple of my preaching in the assembly. But if, if there's something going on that might be impacting the local church, my job as a preacher would be I could very easily see a situation where I would need to take some of the uh, the things that are going on in, in churches or even our in, in our culture and say, you know, this is what's going on. Y'all need I need to make sure y'all you're aware of it. Here's the biblical response to it. If that's what the guy's doing, and there's music in the in the background because a lot as I just said sometimes all through the sermons, these denominational groups will have some kind of background music playing during prayer. You'll have it. I wouldn't have a particular problem with that being done in the assembly as a part of a review of, of biblical or not uh, unbiblical doctrines that we might need to address. So I wouldn't have a problem with that. Like I said, I wouldn't want that to be the staple. I mean, it's one thing like when Tony and Aaron do it as a, a daily or weekly rather uh, uh, internet show that that's fine. I have no problem with that at all. In fact, I think that's actually very good. But in the assembly, I wouldn't want that all the time because we need to do more than just see what everybody else is teaching. That's you know we need to actually get busy teaching the Bible the way that God would have us teach it. We need to do that. But in the assembly uh, or in in a, in a PowerPoint like that, I wouldn't have a problem with it. I would have a problem with it in the assembly um, um, as just um, uh, uh, an accompaniment to to the sermon or, or to the PowerPoint. So um, you know, a lot of this has to do with intent. A lot of it has to do with intent. I, you know, to make, sometimes we get so um, concerned about making sure that every single thing is 100% right. We, we can kind of lose the, lose the, lose the, we can bury the lead as I keep, keep using that phrase lately. Uh, but anyway, that, that's where I'd go with that. Um, uh, Christine said, can you know, start, start from the truth from day one. Uh, and, and in general, in principle, Christine, I'd agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, if you don't bring in a bad practice, you don't have to fix it. Um, 
And so I, I, that, I would call that a principle, not a law. I mean, if, if you need to, if you need something to train a child, then use it. Uh, it you know, don't, 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 don't hamstring yourself. But sometimes I think some, we do take a, an easier path out than perhaps we need to. So uh, anyway, um, we're scrolling on down here. Um, thought I saw one that. Uh, where did I miss it? Thought I saw one more variant on that question. I know I did. Where did it go? Uh, Ronald Clark asked, what about the use of a pitch pipe? Okay. Um, what about the use of a pitch pipe? Um, you know, pitch pipe is just that something, usually it's a circular thing, not always circular, but you know, a little circular thing that pre, the song leader blows into uh, to um, uh, hit the note to help help him get seen. Um, you know, I don't use a pitch pipe anymore because um, it's amazing how when you're leading singing, how often the little um, reed in those things gets stuck and you blow in and nothing happens. Uh, I actually have an app on my phone that that has a pitch pipe on it, and I use the app on my phone to get me the to get me the note. Um, uh, the if you want to make an argument for expedience, there it is. There, there's your argument for expedience. Okay, I, God said to sing. And we need to, you know, in order, some people say, some people say, well, you know, I hear people say often, well, it doesn't really matter how it sounds. Okay. On a, on, on a, on a spiritual level, it does. You're hundred percent right. God doesn't care about the, the, the tonality of our singing that, that that's not, that's not the point. Um, however, when you are doing a corporate environment, it, it, it does kind of matter how it sounds. Um, if, if you've ever been in, a, in an assembly, where the song leader is struggling to get the pitch right or, or to get the melody right, it is distracting and, and, and distracting from on the physical side is real. It's, it can very easily distract on the, on the spiritual side. It's hard to concentrate. Um, you know, I've been in assemblies where, um, you know, the, 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 the song leader, um, uh, missed the pitch so badly that, I would I would end up singing. Uh, usually, I flip back and forth between tenor and bass. I'm kind of, I guess, a baritone, kind of right in the middle of of those. But I, I've been in assemblies where the where the song leader would pitch it so low that 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 I could be singing the alto in the octave above where I should be able to sing it. Uh, it's just that low, and and Julie would then switch to the tenor because she's usually usually an alto. She would switch and sing tenor, even you know I guess full, at that point a full octave above where it should be. Um, because it's just that it's that far off and it matters. It, it does. Uh, I'd like to say it doesn't matter at all, but in terms of the actual flow of the assembly, getting that in the, in the ballpark of right matters. Okay. And having a pitch pipe, hearing the note before you start is a good way to, to, to help, uh, not, not get that so far off that, um, um, that it's, um, that it's not right. Uh, I've also heard a song leader one time I thought made a very good argument. Uh, sometimes we think that the, the pitch pipe is for the just for the um, just for the song leader. Uh, that's not true. Uh, I think that if you're going to use a pitch pipe, I think you need to blow it. You know, maybe not so loudly it overwhelms the auditorium. But my personal opinion is you need to blow that pitch. Uh, whether you're blowing the key note or the starting note doesn't really matter. People will figure it out. Uh, you need to blow that pitch where the song is going to be starting loudly enough so that people in the audience can hear it because i would unless you're just in a church of 20 people and, and sometimes not even that i mean it doesn't you'll, you'll still have it 
But if you if you're in a church of 100, 200, 500 people, there are you might have a chorus teacher in the room. You might have a band instructor in the room. Uh, when you blow the note, uh, I prefer to blow the keynote. That way, those who who know how to find their part can can go from there. If I blow the starting note, it's a little harder for them to make the adjustment. So I prefer to blow the keynote, and that way, um, uh, those who know their parts can find their notes. Because the the argument this this preacher, the song leader made was, when is it that we're supposed to start singing together? And we're supposed to start singing together on the that I mean at, at the start of the song, not not halfway through the first stanza or the first line of the song. And sometimes that's what happens because we don't know where the song leader is going to start the song. We have to wait till he's three, four, five, six words or notes into the song before the rest of us can start singing. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that, but it's it, it makes for a, 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 a better service, a more flowing service if everybody can start singing together. And if you'll take a pitch pipe and blow the note, especially if you're not the greatest singer, if you have people in the auditorium that are, that are trained as singers, um, they will help you out a lot and they'll start singing as soon as you do because they know the pitch that it's supposed to be starting on. That's an expedient. And I know it's an expedient because when we're done getting the note started, we lay the pitch pipe down. And as I was, as I was saying earlier, the instrument's not an expedient to singing. It's it's in their mind an expedient to the whole of worship because it makes everything. It makes the prayers and the sermon and the songs and everything more meaningful, more 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 impactful. Okay, and really, what we mean by that is more emotional. It, it, we get it, and so we use it during the entire time. Okay, we with the pitch pipe, you blow it, you get your note, and you put it down. It's never it's never actually used during the singing. I've never in my life heard anybody try to blow along a, a song with a pitch pipe while the singing is going on. Never heard that in my life. All right, that doesn't happen. It's clearly an expedient to start the song. It does its job. It gets put down, and then we go. There, there's no there's no overlapping between its use and the song. That's the kind of the definition then of an expedient. It's not integral to the act, but it helps the act. Um, that that's so I don't have any problem at all with uh, with that um, as well. Um, <coughs> see what Mimi's saying. Uh, if there is an authority in the Bible for the use of the instrument in in worship, and we're studying the Bible, are, are we searching for the error in the truth? Um, isn't authority in the Bible for the use of musical instruments in worship, and there's not, and we're studying the Bible, and we should, are we there searching to find the error in the truth? I understand the question, Mimi. I think you're, 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 you're going down the right path there, I think, uh, because I, I do believe that's what some people are trying to do. If, if I understand what you're saying is people are, the, 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 the the authority isn't there, which is the point I made earlier. It's not. Okay, you cannot find it authorized anywhere. And so this, you know, I, and if, it, again, if I'm understanding you properly, um, people all the time will pull us, pull, say, hey, we're, we've been doing this this practice, whether it's the singing in the, the assembly or role of women or views on marriage or, or whatever. You know, we've been doing it this way for all these years, 
and we've been praying to God, and, and they always claim some help of the Holy Spirit when they do this. Um, and and now we're going to be studying this together and be praying for the elders as we as we study through this together. And 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 lo and behold, every time they get done, they, they've got a they've got a way that they can change the practice. And God has laid it on their heart that it's good, it's okay to change the practice. And and I think that's essentially what they're doing. To to use your phraseology here. Uh, they're trying, they're searching to find the error in the truth, uh, find out where it's wrong to find that loophole where they can squeeze it in. And I, I do think that is often the, um, the motivation. Um, Mimi or not Mimi, uh, Christine says, is it true? Even in the old Testament, uh, it was the, it was the Levites, the only ones who were authorized could play instruments, uh, and only at breaks where uh, that that's a Hebrew ter- term that we believe is a, a, a moment for a pause in the um in the song sometimes you'll see it in the middle of the psalm selah um we don't exactly know uh what that means i've heard some different thoughts but usually it's it's thought to be some kind of pause or a break uh in the um in it uh christine i I don't have the verses ready today uh but there are there are a couple of passages uh that talk about how david organized the singers in the temple um uh there's one in um there's a reference to the singers in Second Chronicles. It's during the reign. We actually talked about this uh, last week. Um, in the reign of, um, well, the priest was Jehodiah. Um, his wife was Jehosheba. Joram, I believe it was. Um where they are reorganizing the temple worship according to the commandment of David, as, as David did it. Um, and there are other references, I think, also in the Chronicles about David. Um, uh, you have to find those. I don't, I don't have it off the top of my head. And, of course, there's a, there's a couple of references to use of instruments in the, in the Psalms themselves. Um, and that is a, um, an argument that some would make about, you know, David, about the, about the instrument being authorized in the Old Testament. Uh, I don't know, uh, Christine, specifically the, con- the, the statements you've made here uh, that in the organization of temple worship, uh, only the Levites could play the instruments. That would not surprise me if that's true, um, because that that would have been the temple worship would have been conducted by the priest and the Levites. That is certainly the case. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. As I said in the opening, I don't know is sometimes a good answer. And off the top of my head, I, I don't know the specifics of that. Um, and I'm not even sure, I'm trying to think of a passage which might address it. Um, and I don't have one off, again, off the top of my head here. I don't, I don't, I don't have one that I know that would address that topic. Um, if, if <coughs> we've got a knowledgeable audience out there. If any of you do, let me know, because um, uh, I'd be glad to consider that, uh, consider that more fully. As, as as we move along um well man i put the chat up there and y'all just got quiet one comment since i put the chat up there okay <laughs> um let's see what we are um honey says um uh it would probably just confuse children if they're allowed uh, music and then and not in worship and and i think that's as i was saying a few minutes ago i believe that's um that's the uh that that's that's probably probably the case that it would so uh that would be my judgment on the matter um mimi ask um um hold on just one second i was gonna see if i could no 
Okay. Um, in the case of Sunday school for children, why infiltrate their mind with something that is not authorized in worship? Um, shouldn't we be careful how we influence a, a how we influence a child's mind or ch a child's mind? Children don't know how to regulate their boundaries and may take that into there, and then that's where the comments cut off. It looks like it's probably longer than that on Facebook. Um, and, and again, that that would be my judgment uh, is in general to do that. But, you know, on some level, um, you know, Mimi, we do make accommodations for children. Um, you know, that most people most people wouldn't view that the, the idea of people having food and snacks and stuff to eat during worship uh, as something that is uh, certainly uh, preferred. Uh, some people just say it's outright wrong. But I, I've never seen anybody complain about a child having a, you know, a Ziploc bag full of crackers or something to, to get them to the worship hour. I've never, you know, we don't, we, so we do make accommodations and there are children do learn better with some of the hand actions and some of the, the, the toys that we give them as we're telling them Bible stories. And so we make accommodations for them um, <clears throat> all the time and we should, all right, children need to be taught in ways that they can grasp and they can learn. And, you know, doing the, 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 the marching and the, the firing of the artillery when you're in the Lord's army as a child, I don't think is going to corrupt the mind to, um, uh, you know, you're putting your light under the bushel, all that kind of stuff. Wise men building this house upon the rock. I, I don't think that's the cause of, of, of any of the problems we're, we're, we have in the, we have in the church today. I don't think, I don't think I can make an argument. It gets back to that. Um, but in general, I'd certainly agree with you. Um, and certainly as those children begin to age, you know, when you go from the primary to the secondary education and you get up into the high school ranks, um, that, that instruction needs to begin to, to change and, and that so that they understand there's a distinction between what's being done for a kindergartner preschooler versus what's being done for a, you know, a junior high student or a high school student. So in, in general, in, in general, I think we, we do a pretty good job of it. I, I, I've, you know, most, most of the ladies and, and particularly in the younger grades, it's, it's usually our ladies that, that are teaching those classes. And um, I don't, I don't know that I've really come ever come across just any really bad habits um, in, in those, in those classrooms. I'm sure it happens, but by and large, our, our ladies back, <coughs> back in those classrooms just do uh, um, an outstanding job and use very good judgment on how they teach the children. Um, and so, um, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's an issue. It's one we can, we can consider, but in general, uh, I have a, a great deal of trust for, um, for all of those uh, ladies who are, who are back there, um, uh, doing the, um, uh, do, doing the teaching. Um, and let's see where we are. Um, um, Melissa says, what's Melissa say there? Um, we should be preparing young ones for when they, when they are, uh, uh, baptized. Yep. Um, that, that is absolutely something that we should, uh, be working people toward. Uh, you know, there was, a there was a, a famous, I can say a famous quote, an oft repeated quote. I don't know who, who they, who the original quote was, um, uh, attributed to. Uh, but I heard it all the time growing up in the seventies. And then of course, when I was old enough to start hearing things, maybe in the, in the early eighties, preachers would say all the time, uh, something that the Catholics apparently used to say. Um, and, and it's been a while since I've heard somebody, uh, repeat it. Um, but, um, 
Um, the, the quote went something like along, along the lines of, you know, give us a child until he's six years old and he'll be a Catholic forever, something of that nature. Um, and there's probably a lot of truth in that. And that is one, after having just said, I think in general, we do a really good job in our Bible classes. Um, that is one thing I would like to see us do better. Um, and that is, we don't do as good of a job as I'd like to see us do teaching the facts, the actual facts of the Bible. Um, we start telling, we tell Bible stories and we do that really well to our, you know, our, our nursery classes, preschool classes, and so on. But we get real quick, as, as I have observed um, what goes on in, in, in Bible, younger age that, you know, starting that second, third, fourth grade on up um, and so on, we start trying to talk to children about their behavior and spend a good portion of the class talking about application, about what God wants them to do in changing their behavior. I don't, if in my opinion, in my opinion, I don't know that Sun, I'm about to say Sunday school, Teresa, you're going to get me in trouble, get me say Sunday school. Don't tell my daddy I just said that. <laughs> um, seriously, y'all have not made a comment since 829. It's been 20 minutes since y'all have made a comment. There's no way that's right. Is my chat not working? Seriously, nothing, nothing for 20 minutes. That never happens. Are y'all either my chat's not working or y'all aren't y'all aren't making comments? I'm gonna turn that back off. And see if maybe something's going on there. Somebody say something to me. <laughs> but um, we spend a lot of time talking to the the kids about behavior, um, and I think we should spend more time dealing with the actual facts of the Bible. They don't know them well enough. They don't. Um, and this is the time to memorize them, for them to memorize all of those Bible facts. It is easier for the young mind to consume and put those facts away forever when they're young. And we don't. Uh, and especially as they start getting late elementary into junior high, and particularly in high school, our focus shifts almost entirely to um, um, behavior, protect, pr protective behaviors, and again, then behavior modification. Uh, I can't tell you how many times, and this was back in the mid eighties when I was in, in, in high school, if we had one more teacher come in, uh, uh in, into the high school class and teach, and, and, and teach about peer pressure, I, I, I was going to like gouge my eyes out. Okay. The last three teachers in here, all, they spent their whole quarter talking about peer pressure. Don't following, don't go following uh, um, your friends into doing evil. I mean, it was it was just like, come on, guys. There, there, there's something in here. There, there's more here. There's something, something more that you could actually say to us at some point, other than, hey, don't uh, don't get engaged in peer pressure again, okay? Because that would be that would be wrong if you if you let uh, uh, peer pressure overcome you. So, um, um, so. Yeah, that was, um, 
that was something that was very, very common. Okay. That's what we do. You know, don't, don't do drugs. Don't, don't have sex. Da, 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 da. When we start, they start getting to that age. And I understand, I understand we're, we're concerned about them. Uh, we're fearful for them and all that kind of stuff, but that that's the staple of our curriculum from about the time they get, um, um, they get to be, you know, old enough to, to, to have any kind of thought. And I think we just did, um, um, we, we, I, I don't think that we're doing to doing that right. Um, yep, there it is. Thank you. Y'all are actually okay. My, my chat is not moving. Um, I knew something was wrong. There's no way that was the case. Hold on just one second. Here. Okay. That's what we do. You know, don't, don't do drugs. Don't, don't have sex. Hold on. That's going to be coming back over the feed here in a second. Um, yeah. Oh, y'all have just been talking away. And my chat has just been uh, just been as frozen as it could be. There y'all go. Y'all are still talking. Um, yeah, but anyway, so I, I would spend more time do, dealing with Bible facts, which would help with the prep to getting baptized. That's what I would like to see us do more of. Uh, when I when I grew up, I was exposed to the the Engraving Heavenly Truth series. Uh, of my, Actually, my dad helped write the first in, initial things of it back in the 70s. It was my dad and Henry and Louise Dawson uh, an, an elder and his wife from the Shades Mountain congregation that started. I grew up with flashcards. I mean, that that's what we had. We had flashcards. And then we would tell the Bible story around it. And then <clears throat> for the remainder of the class, we would drill on the flashcards. Um, and we did that. And so, you know, we, we'd do the Bible story on Sunday morning. And then typically we would come back on Sunday night or Wednesday night for the Wednesday night midweek class. And we would play Bible baseball, Bible hangman, and we would just drill with the flashcards. And after you've done several quarters, now the teacher has, you know, each 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 set had about a hundred flashcards. Um, and after the after the church has been doing that series for a couple of years, uh, you know, let's say eight quarters, now you have about eight hundred Bible flashcards that you can drill your students on. And that's how I grew up. We just got inundated with. Um, uh, those kind of Bible facts. It would be Bible verses to memorize and, and uh, different facts about the Bible, different, different facts about different Bible books, facts about different doctrines. And, and you walked out of that church, every, every child in that church knew the basic facts about the Bible. Um, and and that is, that's the one area I'd like to see us do better on. Um so let me I'm scroll back here through Facebook. I don't have the the YouTube comments up because I've only got apparently. Maybe I can refresh this during the break and see if um, see if we can get it. Um, um, I can't put these on the screen anymore because of the way that works. Um, okay, let me let me let me try something here. I'm going to try something that I don't know if this is going to work or not. But uh, if the stream cuts off, give me a minute. I'll be right back with you. Hold on just a second. Okay, I guess I'm back, hopefully. Hopefully I'm still here. Um, so somebody make a comment. Let me see if I make a comment and see if that comes up. Um, I have to enable the channels. What happened? My channels got disabled. How did that happen? 
Hold on. All right. Can't post to some channels. That's fine. So somebody talk to me. Did y'all see that? There you go. Huh. Okay, learning on the fly here. Something weird just happened. I bet. I wonder if I bet what happened. Hold on. We're troubleshooting live on the air. That That is the wonderful thing about live streams is that... Um, hmm. I bet I know what happened. I bet I know exactly what happened. Okay, that that that's good to know. Um, that's good to know. Okay, uh, Tony set up the uh, the stream for eleven o'clock, and I think when he set up the stream for eleven o'clock, it disconnected my channels from me. Um, so I had to restart them over here. So now I can see y'all. There you go. Um, where are we? we got eight fifty six. Let me let me read back through some of these. Um, Melissa says, I know you said Progressive used 2 Chronicles 2930 to, to authorize instruments, uh, but it, it is a good verse to refute the use of instruments. Comparison on how the Old Testament, the Levites could do it, but in the New Testament, we are royal priesthood and we all sing without instruments. Um, yep. Um, I'd have to go back and, and look that up to, 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 to see the, the point there. I don't just, I, I, I trust, trust that about, about the statement. But I don't I don't have the text of that verse in my brain at the moment. But uh, thank you for that, Melissa. Um, just trying to catch up here. Um, 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 da, 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 da. Teresa says, I guess following up with the question before, it was a PowerPoint in a Bible class. And and again, Teresa, you know it. It's not. It's not something that I. I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about having the music in the PowerPoint, which came from earlier in the um, uh, earlier in the session. Um, I assume. Uh, I, I assume that's what you're talking about, and you know, I'd probably have to see it to to give you a, a, my final judgment on the matter. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I would say that's um, that's probably not something that I would uh, that I would be in a in a few of. Um, Sue says our little pewpackers class is full of facts and memory verses, and 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 I, I like those pewpacker classes. I think they're a a good um, uh, a good good thing to do. Um, um, Connie says when boys reach a certain age, especially if they are baptized, they are taught by a man. Do you think it's a good idea to have separate classes for boys and girls to, to discuss uh, touchy topics uh, at least for a time before bringing them together? Um, in Certainly, uh, there are there are certain topics that you should uh, um, that that need to be covered probably separately, particularly at a certain age for the kids. Um, I, I know why we do it because a lot of times in the um, in the uh, in the in the classes um, or or in in the church in our churches, we understand that our children are not getting the instruction they should at home on some of these matters. <coughs> and so the church tries to step in and do it for them. Um, but as I was saying a few minutes ago, again, Jonathan opinion, Jonathan 101 here. Um, I do think we spend more time than we probably should addressing those kind of societal, cultural 
issues with children. That is not the job of the Bible class, okay? They're technically supposed to get that kind of training in the home. Um, and if they're not, I don't know that the solution is to turn our Bible classes into, um, uh, you know, support groups for teenagers. The solution to that is do better with the parents. The solution to that is fix the homes, all right? So I'm not saying we shouldn't ever address those kind of topics, but um, let, me, let me say this. If that child is not getting the proper support they need on these touchy topics, and usually what we're talking there, usually what we're talking about there is some, something to do with sex, um, they're probably also not getting the underlying foundation they need which is actual Bible instruction. So if you're, if you're there trying to do, you know, support groups um, through your youth program, you're not, you're trying to build, put a Band-Aid on something where there's no um, underlying health beneath, beneath it. You know, you're trying to build a building on top of a faulty foundation. I still think even in that setting, we would be better off with simple, straightforward Bible instruction. Um, to give the kid as the child grows a foundation of biblical understanding, okay? I still would prefer to see us there. But um, in certain settings, I think it would be very much appropriate to, to separate those children out. Again, Jonathan 101. Um, so anyway, uh, <laughs> Sue says we have four-year-olds with more facts about the Bible than some of our adults. That's also true. Um, so let me go ahead and get down here. Um, um, Wayne Lads to Leadership. She says sounds like a great program. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not thrilled with everything in Lads to Leaders. Um, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of big church, parachurch type organizations to begin with. Um, but there's a lot. Like I said, I don't know that it's, that it's a, it's a perfect instrument. Uh, I've actually written some material for from the, for some of their workbooks in years past. Uh, so I'm, I'm certainly not an anti Lads to Leaders, but that's certainly one of those times where it it's 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 maybe not a perfect instrument, but man, it's it's a whole lot better than all, than any other instrument we've got. So, um, in most settings, in most churches, uh, I think Lads Leaders is a is a net benefit as opposed to uh, anything else. So, um, <laughs> uh, Melissa says I bought those flashcards for our children. I'm talking about engraving heavenly truths. Uh, I still I still love them. I, I still see. I can't tell you how many facts about them. You ask me a Bible question, and I will see those flashcards. It's just plain white flashcards, big, thick. I don't know what the font was, but it was a big, thick black font, and it, that's all it was. No, no decorations, no nothing. White card, simple black text, and I still quote Bible verses. And when I quote Bible verses, I see, I, I see those flashcards in my brain, and it's been you know forty-five years. Uh, that that's how important I think they are. So. Um, Anyway, we are past the top of the hour here. Um, appreciate you hanging on with me the um, uh, th through the, some of those issues, and we'll see uh, what's uh, what's going on there. But um, I think we got that fixed. So I'm going to go ahead and take the break here at the top of the hour and get ready to get set up for the second hour. Appreciate that good good discussion this morning. I wish I wish I would have seen it all because apparently I missed about 20 minutes of y'all's conversation back and forth. Um, but anyway. Uh, thank you, Teresa, for the question that kind of got us started on that. 
a lot easier than Jonathan's question yesterday. That was so much easier than Daniel 9. Thank you, Teresa. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, but um, let's go ahead and get set up for the second hour of the program. We can put the splash screen up here just for a second and then give me three or four or five minutes and I will be um, uh, right back with you all um, in, to uh, start our study of First Peter for the day. All right, everybody, welcome back here to the uh, second hour of From the Deep End. Uh, in this particular hour, we 
turn our attention to um, the book of First Peter. That is our um, standard practice here, and we will uh, follow along with that here in a second, just as soon as I get my screen share put up in the way that I want it. Um, there we go. That works for me right there, I suppose. Um, and we are in um, the middle part of First Peter uh, chapter 1, um, and thankful for um, um, uh, your participation in the first hour of the program. Sorry that um, I missed out on so much about the um, um, of that and the uh, use of the um, um, comment section there, but I think we have that problem solved. Looks like everything else is going along well enough at this point. So having said that, let's just jump right back in here to First Peter. Uh, we are in about verse six or seven. Um, <clears throat> and just as, as we were talking about in the, in the program or on the program rather yesterday, um, what we are looking here, what we are looking for here in First Peter is a reminder of the, um, or, or a reminder to, maybe a better way to say it, to, to the audience of Peter about the legitimacy of the choices that they made, the legitimacy of their faith, chapter 5, verse 11. Uh, don't forget that verse as we study through First Peter, because it will tell you what Peter is writing about. He says, I've written this briefly, that you may know that you're standing in the true grace of God. All right. That leads open, that leads the, open the possibility, certainly suggests the possibility that his, uh, he is concerned that his, um, um, his viewers or his viewers about that, uh, his readers rather, um, might be thinking they've, they've made the wrong choice. And it has been my contention throughout the first few lessons of the study will be throughout the entirety of it, that largely his audience, of course, is Jewish, just exiles of the dispersion. And if they, if they are thinking they have met, might have made the wrong choice, uh, their, their other option would be to, uh, turn and go back into, uh, into Judaism. And that, of course, would be a, a mistake for them, as they would be throwing away uh, so much of their um, of their confidence, throwing away the, the the their faith, and that and this would be exactly the wrong moment uh, to do it. You would be, you know, be like selling a stock after it's already crashed, and you know, you, you it's 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 too late now. You, you've you've already made your choice; you're in it. Okay, um, and so um, that that is where we would. Uh, that's where we would be with that. So anyway, uh, let's turn our attention down here into um, uh, about verse number seven. As I said, that's that's where we have been. Um, let's, let's just start in verse six. In this, you you rejoice, okay? Uh, in this, the the promise of that salvation that that we've been talking about, the promise of that inheritance, uh, that that salvation ready to be revealed. Obviously, in this you are rejoicing. So that living hope that you have of this inheritance, of the salvation that's ready to be revealed. In this you do rejoice. And then, as, as we noted yesterday, though now for a little while, uh, you have been grieved by various trials, all right? Though now for a little while, and he says, if necessary, uh, you have been grieved with, uh, with many trials, okay? Our various trials. Uh, once again, pay attention to the... Um, um, the um, uh, specific wording of this text. And, and once again, uh, some, somebody put a comment in because it looks like I am frozen again. Is that possible? It's not moving again. Did y'all just stop talking or am I frozen again? Somebody somebody put something in and let me know because if I don't see it move here in a little bit, I'll, I'll know. But it looks like we might be frozen again on the, on the chat side. I, I thought I had that fixed. Anyway, 
Um, I'll stop paying attention to that. Just get back to the text here. Um, though now for a little while, uh, okay, there it is. It's good. Y'all just got quiet. That's fine. Um, now for a little while, of course, y'all know what I'm going to say about that. Um, just the um, first century time, the suffering of the of the first century is the suffering of Matthew 24. It's the coming of the great tribulation. And, you know, I, I just don't know how, I, I don't know how you read this text, put it in the first century and not connect it to the trials that are mentioned within the, the first century writings. Even if you late date Revelation and you move it down to, to a later point in time, maybe you could make the case that, that this is the persecution of Rome is already starting. I don't know, but I don't know how you don't do that. Um, and, and and oftentimes when people study their study their New Testament, uh, you know, you you go to your your Bible class at your church on Sunday and you're studying First Peter, and though for a little while you're if necessary you're grieved by various trials. Um, I mean, it's 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 like clockwork. Uh, the 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 teacher of that class will just pass right through here and and begin to talk about all the various trials uh, that that we uh, that we have in life. Um, I mean, I think I've told you this story in the past. As much as I'm on here talking, I'm, I'm sure I have because I don't have that many stories. But uh, I'm not. I'm yeah. I'm not Steve Higginbotham. I don't have that many stories. <laughs> um, but. Um, you know, I was sitting, sitting in a Bible class one time that I was not teaching. I think it was James 1, um, the trial of your faith works patience. I think that's the verse we were talking about. Uh, I was I was at a congregation in Houston. It wasn't the one I preached at. It was another one. It was um, I was at a congregation in Houston. And I sat in that Bible class and I listened to the crowd, in, uh, this Houston crowd, talk about the various trials they have in their life. And we spent a good five minutes, maybe three to five minutes of that class talking about keeping your keeping your cool in Houston traffic. And I was just, I wasn't, I was trying my best not to shake my head. Uh, Julie didn't elbow me in the ribs, so I must not have been shaking it too badly. But I, I was, I was just sitting back there just frustrated. What, what are y'all doing with this text? What, what are y'all doing? Okay, that, that's, that's not, that, that, that's not even on the scope of, of what Peter's talking about here. That, that's that's not even in the realm of what Peter's talking about here. Um, the, the, this is a serious trial. Uh, it's a fiery trial, he will call it in chapter four. Okay, and when you read that kind of thing, time has come for judgment, fiery trial. We've referenced those passages in previous lessons, so I'm going to try not to belabor the point here. But please, people, please, when you're studying your Bible, particularly you're studying your New Testament, Understand that these books are not taken in isolation. All right, First Peter is written to saints in Asia, right? In the middle sixties, AD, AD, you know, the the the, the middle sixties. All right, First Timothy is written to to Timothy while Timothy is at Ephesus, which is in Asia. Is it First Timothy three twelve that says all that would live godly in Christ Jesus, or is that Second Timothy? Ah, it's a, see, I got a problem. First Timothy three twelve can't be that because that's the qualification of deacon. It's got to be Second Timothy three. Um, um, says all that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Okay, so Second Timothy maybe a little bit later than First Peter, but still same basic region of the world within three or four years of each other. Here, there's a little while various trials there. Everybody that's going to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You turn to the book of Revelation, 
the 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 the, the trials of the book of Revelation, the first church they're written to is the, the church at Ephesus. Um, you read about the evil day, the present darkness to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, um, and so on. You read all of that. Um, first, second, and third John. Again, depending on who you read, either written to or from, um, from the... Um, um, uh, a, a church at Ephesus talks about the Antichrist and so on. These books are not written in isolation, right? They're written all at roughly the same time, within a few years of each other, very often to the same people in the same region. And, and you come across, leave those texts there, okay? These are real people. These were real people with real lives. And they woke up on Tuesday morning. And they went to work on a Tuesday morning, just like we do. Thank you, Travis. It is Second Timothy three twelve. Um, they 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 woke up on on a Tuesday morning, and and they had chariot traffic and cart traffic as they went to work too. I guess I, I don't. They had, but that's not what Peter's talking about. They woke up in a world which was actively trying to squash out Christianity in a way that even ours today does not do. You do damage to the text when you simply. Do not um, um, have that going on in the um, in the world. Okay, so don't don't do that. Um, so I believe he's talking about first century trials. Uh, I believe he's talking about the great tribulation. Uh, as we talked about Daniel nine yesterday in the first hour of the program, that at three and a half whatever year, I guess you'd call it the forty two months of the book of Revelation, we're about to enter into the the peak of the greatest tribulation the world would ever know for Christians, and you're going to be grieved by them. So there's the contrast. You rejoice, but now you're also grieved. You rejoice in the hope, the living hope, but obviously that's what trials will do. They will cause you grief. And he says to them, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, and that is what, again, that is the theme of our book. Okay, First Peter talking about the, the, the your standing in the genuine faith, the true grace of God. And now we're about to find out how genuine your faith is in that uh, grace of God. And then he says about it, he says, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Okay. Your faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though even though it is, is um uh, 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 tested by fire, right? So uh, often gold could be purified by fire. That'd be one way to get the impurities out of it. Probably the reference that he's talking about here. Uh, we're heating up the gold to um, uh, 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 to to, um, um, uh, to purify it, and so on. That would be the process. Obviously, as as a result, that gold becomes molten, and and so on. Uh, the, the concept of it perishing by fire or tested by fire. Okay. That's probably the imagery that he has in mind there. But he says, your faith is more precious than that. It's more precious than gold that you would seek to refine and make it pure. He says, you're going through these various trials so that, so don't don't lose the, the theme there. You're going through the trials so that the genuineness of your faith, okay, skip that little, uh, um, you know, uh, parenthetical type statement. The genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? So you want to come through on the other side of this. These trials that you're going through, you want to come through at the other side of them. And that genuine faith is going to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So now again, you have the question. Um, what are we talking about here when we talk about the revelation of Jesus Christ? Um, the most common view that somebody would take about the revelation of Jesus Christ, of course, would be um, that uh, we are dealing here with the second coming. Uh, that is certainly true. Uh, that is absolutely true that um, uh, there is going to be a revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of the world. And if if uh, if you were the one uh, here teaching this class this morning, and that's what you um, had to say about it, I would not I would not have an argument against you at all um, uh, for doing it because I think that's a very allowable use of the text here. I don't think that is what the uh, the text is actually uh, discussing here. Um, I think we're actually dealing with uh, some some other things that uh, that we've talked about in, in times past. Um, I have a grandchild sneaking in. I think he has to go to the restroom. He's crawling past me right now. Y'all can't see him. They're trying to be sneaky, but they're not really being that sneaky. I'm sure y'all hear that in the background. Um, so we, we have limited space here and I have a grandchild that's trying to get to a restroom apparently. Uh, oh, the fun things of live streaming. Anyway, um, but um, I do think this, this conversation is probably, um, or this, this reference here to the revelation of Jesus Christ is probably going to be still within something relating to the first century. Uh, that would be my take on the matter. Um, you know, you're going to have the same kind of thought uh, here in, in chapter, uh, chapter four, end of chapter four on into chapter five, where we have the idea that the, um, um, the, uh, the 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 um, fiery trial has come. Uh, suffer, suffer as a Christian. Then in chapter five, I exhort the elders that among you, a fellow elder, witness of the suffering of Christ, as well a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, uh, the shepherd of the flock of God, and so on. So we have a partaker in the glory that is being revealed, and then you have the chief shepherd appears. Uh, you will receive the un un unfading crown of glory, and so on. Um, so that same language is found over in chapter five. Um, but you have this concept of a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. That's chapter five. See, I, I just, again, if, if, you, if, you, um, if, you, if you put that forward and say that's talking about the end of the world, man, I'd have a hard time arguing with you. I really would. Because that, that, that's, that, that is certainly a biblical concept and, and not one I want to be on the... Uh, on the uh, on the other side of at all um give me just one second here i have to direct traffic come on just close the door there we go grandson taken care of um so i i wouldn't i wouldn't spend a lot of time a lot of breath arguing with you but it just seems odd to me uh, here in chapter five, and I'll make the point here in chapter one as well. It just seems odd to me that chapter four and verse 17, the time has come for judgment. 
So it's not some, it's not some future off event. The time has come for judgment right there. And that judgment is to begin not at the world, but it's going to begin at the house of God. So this is a judgment like we just saw in chapter one. Your faith is being purified, being, being like by gold being tested and perishing by fire. You're, and we're trying to get down to the genuine faith. Some people are going to fall away. Some faith is going to fail, but some are going to come through. Their faith is going to be genuine. It, it's going to be that you know purified gold, if you will. It's going to be that much more precious. precious. Here, the same thing's happening. It's not the world that's going to be suffering here. It's the church that's going to be suffering, the household of God. And it begins with us. Now, the world ultimately is, 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 is suffering there, but this is one that begins at the household of God, all right? Um, and then immediately, and we start the word, we start chapter five with the English word, so. In, in, in consequence of what's happening here, where the righteous are scarcely saved and judgment begins at the household of God, and again, please leave these books in the first century. Um, why would that not connect? Why would that not connect? When, when I say that, 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 that portion of the glory that is to be revealed, okay? Fiery trial has come upon you. At the end of the fiery trial, the great tribulation, what is there? Is there not glory at the end of that great tribulation? Is there not a revelation of the glory of the people of God? Well, Go to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, we've been to this passage before. We have the sealing of the 144,000 out of, out of Israel. And, then, and do not forget what follows, that great multitude that no one can number. Um, and look at, look at what them, uh, about them. They are clothed in white, palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their face before the throne of God, saying, Worship, or worship God, saying, Amen, blessing, glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power to be our God forever and ever. And um, the, 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 I asked, John says, I asked, Who are these people? And, he, and, and, I, and I said to him, um, uh, Who are these who are clothed in white robes, and from whence have they come? He said to them, You, sir, you know, he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne shall shelter them with his presence. Um, boy, that sounds like, a, sounds like a lot of good stuff going on when you come out of the great tribulation. Okay, could that not be connected back here to your, your, your faith being found genuine? In praise and glory and honor, I, I think. Yeah, I just I think that this is connected. Revelation chapter seven, the first church that Revelation chapter seven, at least in terms of the order, the sequence in which they're found in the book, the first church to whom Revelation chapter seven is the church at Ephesus, which the last time I checked is in Asia, which is the book that First Peter is written to. That, as I say often, I just don't believe in coincidences in my Bible. I don't believe in coincidences in my Bible. I think this is all talking about the same thing. Now, the real question is, is there a revelation? And that just that word just means a, a, a appearance. Um, in fact, it, it is 
uh, it is the uh, um, same word um, that is, um, uh, go, go, well, go back over here just a second real quick. Um, when you look at the beginning of the book of Revelation, um, the first word in a Greek text for the book of Revelation is actually the word revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what First Peter is talking about. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, I personally, and this is just again one, one more time, this is just me, Jonathan 101, but I believe verse 7 is not talking about the second coming. I believe verse 7 is he is coming on the clouds. Every eye will see him. All the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Yes, that's true. I believe this statement, the way that it is phrased in the middle of that verse, even those who pierced him will see him. I don't think that's looking down to the end of time. Now, it is true that at the end of time, obviously, those who pierced Jesus would actually see, will actually see him and every knee will bow before him and they will be in that number. So that is absolutely a truth, one I would not disagree with. But if you ask me, sitting right here with the microphone on right now, I believe John uses that phrase because those who actually pierced him, those soldiers that actually pierced him, hung him to that cross, the soldier that pierced his side very easily could still be alive when Jesus returned in judgment of Jerusalem. I believe they're included in that number to make the point. I say that because of this. Go back to Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, it says about this, that this gospel of the kingdom, this great tribulation that's coming, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This gospel, this good news about the, the fall of Jerusalem, would go out to the whole world as a witness, as a testimony of, the, of God and of, and of the legitimacy of the gospel, the legitimacy, therefore, of the Christ would go out among all nations. And when it comes, when the end of the age comes, Matthew says, or Jesus says, recorded by Matthew, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. We've talked about this language in, in the past as we were studying through Romans 8. Moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. Um, the, the, the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of man, the sign, the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That is Revelation 1-7. That's exactly what Revelation 1-7 says. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This does not happen at the end. Well, this, this, this will happen at the end of the world. But this is not that instant. <laughs> This is immediately, not, not 2,000 years removed, immediately after the tribulation of those days, those days which will be completed before, verse 34, before the generation of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, 
before the generation of those standing on the temple grounds, saying, what is the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age? This will happen before this generation passes away. Now, part of this generation that was on the earth when Peter, Andrew, James, and John were there would be those Roman guards who pierced Jesus and put him on the cross. And they will see the sign, the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. I did this. How will they know that the falling of the powers that be, the sun and the moon being darkened, how will they know that this is a testimony to the Christ? Because this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all nations for a witness. We told you this was going to happen. That's why in 2 Peter, and in the book of Jude, as we just studied in 2 Peter and Jude, you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord through a prophet, uh, uh, um, excuse me, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing that first of all, scoffers will come in the last days. And then where is the promise of his coming? You should remember Jesus told you about this. Here is the testimony. Here is the witness. And when your faith stands firm through the tribulation, as we looked at the book of Hebrews, I believe it was yesterday, we are in, in, in Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10, the very end of it. He says, um, end of chapter 10, where is the end of chapter 10? Um, we, he says, have need of endurance so that after, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised, that promised inheritance. Okay. Um, don't shrink back. Your soul has no pleasure. We are not of those who shrink back and destroy, are destroyed, but of those who have faith and, and preserve their souls. Don't think he's talking there about salvation eternally. I think he's talking about this judgment that's coming that will not delay in the book of Hebrews. Don't shrink back. Shrink back into what? Where are you going to go? If you're a Hebrew in AD 68, what are you shrinking back to? Not paganism. You were never a pagan. You were a Jew who became a Christian. What did you what are you going to shrink back to? Judaism. And if you shrink back to Judaism now, you die. Because the judgment is here, the coming one, the one who is going to come, quote unquote, in the clouds of heaven. And he's going to bring judgment. See, so what we do is we read those clouds of heaven language and we, 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 we are siloed in our thinking. It can only refer to the second coming. So anytime I see that language, that passage is second coming. What I'm trying to do is help you understand, no, that language is used over and over again in different ways. Um, even in, is it, uh, oh, do a little off the top of my head. I think it's Matthew 16. Ooh, I could be wrong here. Please, I don't think I am. Um... Um. Yeah, that's it. Uh, I, 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 that, yeah, that's it. It's good enough. Uh, Sixteen twenty-seven. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. See, here he is. Jesus is coming with his angels in the glory of the Father. You read that language, and what do you think immediately? Well, the the, the average Bible student who knows that one day, you know, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, with the shout of the trumpet, with the voice of the archangel, here comes Jesus, it's coming with the angels, that's the end of the world, right? Gotta be. When Jesus comes with the glory of the Father, 
and with his angels, it must be the end of the world because that's what that language means. Truly I say to you, this is Jesus talking to the disciples in AD, let's call it 30. There are some standing here, here where? Somewhere in Judea, somewhere in Israel, in AD 30, with their actual physical eyeballs looking at the eyeballs of Jesus Christ in the body. They're in the flesh in AD 30. Some of their names you know. You know at least 12 of them. Standing there, looking on the body, the person of Jesus Christ. Some of you, I say to you, not to me, not, not to Travis, not to Sue, not to Deborah, not, not to anybody else in the, in the comment section, no. To you standing here, some of you who are standing here right now with me in AD 30 will not taste of death, you will not die, until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. When did that happen? Acts 2. Now, you want to make the case more fully, you could say at Daniel 7, and you have the full context there, but let's say Acts 2. A couple of years later, at most. What this passage is talking about is Jesus coming in his kingdom in AD 30-ish. And you will see the Son of Man coming with his authority, with his kingdom. You're going to see the establishment of the reign of the Son of Man, of the Christ. What is that called? That is called Jesus coming with his angels in the glory of the Father. It's not the end of the world. See, the problem is we don't understand the language. And the only, the, 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 so there, there, let me say it this way. There are at least three, you know, we talk about the first coming and the second coming. I have at least four, is it four or is it five? Okay, Jesus came when he was born, the first coming. All right. Malachi 4, we talked about that yesterday. Okay. Coming into the kingdom. Um, there is also, um, is it, um, well, there's this one. I'll just say this one. Second coming, coming in his kingdom. That's at least another one. I think you can make a case for a, a one uh, related to the limited commission, although the verse is slipping without my head right now. But there's at least these two. There's his coming in the judgment of, uh, of Israel in AD 70. The language is used there. And then obviously there's this is coming at the end of the world, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There are at least four, and I think there's actually a fifth one. If I can remember the verse off the top of my head, I'd give it to you. But there are at least four, quote-unquote, comings of Jesus in the New Testament. At least four. And the hard part about it is this language well, he's coming in the clouds, he's coming with his angels. That language can be used to describe essentially all of them. All of them. You have to stay in your context. You have to stay with it. I say all of that to bring us back to 1 Peter. I personally believe in 1 Peter chapter 1 that what we have here 
in this revelation of Jesus Christ. Am I in the, I'm in 2 Peter chapter 1. That's why that was not making any sense at all as I looked down and tried to read it. Let's go back up here to 1 Peter chapter 1. That's going to make a whole lot more sense when I read it now. This is your faith being tested as genuine is going to be found at the at praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think that's probably talking about the judgment uh, of the great tribulation and having your robes washed white, being part of the 144,000 faithful remnant who are sealed, coming out of the great tribulation. You are going to be glorified in that moment. All right, how much time do I have left? 940, I've got time. Okay, we've talked about this. And I want you to learn to connect some of these verses together as need be, right? Your faith is going to be praise, praiseworthy, it's going to be glorified, and it's going to be honored at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, that is the same basic language. We just saw it in 1 Peter 5. Same basic language we found in Romans chapter 8, right? The sufferings of this present time, though now for a little while you are grieved with various trials, not worth to not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. I wonder when. Maybe at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, and that's what we're looking for. We are currently waiting for the redemption of our body. Remember that is singular in the Greek, and we have hope, and we wait with for it with patience. In 1 Peter, we have the inheritance that is coming our way. We have the first fruits of the Spirit here. In 1 Peter 1, we have the sanctification of the Spirit. We have the little while suffering of, of 1 Peter 1. We have the suffering of the present time in Romans chapter 8. We have the glory that is to be revealed in Romans 8. We have the glory that is to be revealed in 1 Peter 1. It's almost like these guys are writing about the same thing. They are. They're writing about exactly the same thing. That's why they're using the same words to describe it. The basis of this understanding, I believe, is found in, in Daniel chapter 7, where we have talked about it time and again, but I will remind you again for the sake of this class, so that we have it on the record. We talked about it at length, though, in our study of Romans chapter 8. Dominion, the greatness of a kingdom, resided in the four various beasts of Daniel 7, or the four parts of the image of Daniel 2. The four beasts, the first three beasts, have their lives prolonged for a season and a time in the fourth beast. Because all of the beasts, while the fourth beast is a various beast, is somewhat different, they are still the kingdoms of men. And the rulership, the dominion of the kingdom, has always been within the kingdoms of men. God would say to Nebuchadnezzar, this is going to happen to you so that you know that the Most High rules in the affairs of man and gives the kingdom to whomsoever he will. That is in the background. Those discussions that Daniel had with, with the Babylonian kings, that statement is found three or four times, I think, in the book of Daniel. God rules in the affairs of man and gives the quote-unquote kingdom to whomsoever he will. And Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. I'm giving it to you. And I'm going to take it from you. I'm going to give it to Greece or the Medes and the Persians. I'm going to take it from them. I'm going to give it to Greece. I'm going to take it from them and I'm going to give it to Rome. But the last human kingdom that would ever have the kingdom would be the kings of Rome. Now, it's not to say other kingdoms wouldn't exist after that, but the kingdom 
that God gives rulership and dominion over is no longer in the hands of man. That's what Daniel 2 and verse number uh, 44 says. We're going to take the kingdom from the kingdoms of men, and God would set up his own kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor will the kingdom be left to another people. That's what the, the image of Daniel 2 is just that. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the kingdom. You're the head of gold, but another people's going to have it after you. And then another person's going to have it after you. And then another person's going to have it after you until you get to the time of the Roman kings. When you get to the time of the Roman kings, that stops. Oh, nations will rise and fall, but the quote-unquote kingdom that God gives will never pass to another people. The first person to have the kingdom that God would rule and give to whomsoever he will was given to one like the Son of Man when he came to the Ancient of Days. That happened at his ascension. He possessed the kingdom. He came to the kingdom, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, never be left to another person, and his kingdom one that should never be destroyed. Unlike the beast of Daniel 7, unlike the image of Daniel 2, his kingdom would never be destroyed. Never again, not once. Men would try. Because now we see the fourth beast. And the fourth beast would try to, try to hold on to his greatness, try to hold on to his dominion. A little horn would rise out of that, and he would make war with the saints, and he would seem that he would prevail over them. And that would happen until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And then this phrase, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. The saints do not possess the kingdom until after the Ancient of Days makes war with the little horn who has been making war with his people. That little horn comes up after the ten horns. I think it's probably Vespasian because he put down three after the death of Nero. And that's what the little horn does. But that's not the point. Okay? Four great beasts rise out of the earth but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. Jesus already had it. And possess the kingdom forever and ever, forever, forever and ever. But that does not happen until after the little horn rises up, about the ten horns that were on its head and another horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things and he seemed greater than his companion and he made war with the saints of the Most High and he prevailed over them, the Great Tribulation. 
But then God said, I've had enough. Read the book of Revelation. I've had enough. How long, O Lord, until you avenge us, avenge our blood on those that dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord? A little while. Things which must shortly come to pass. 42 months, 1290 days to be exact. As for the fourth beast, there should be a fourth kingdom, different than all the other kingdoms that devour the whole earth, stamping it down, trample it down, and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, there are ten kings, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different than the former ones. He shall put down three kings. The only one about whom that could legitimately be said would be Vespasian, in my opinion. He'll speak words against the Most High. He'll wear out the saints of the Most High to think to change the laws and the times and be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. There's our language again. Three and a half. But the court shall sit in judgment. There's coming a day of reckoning. Have you read the book of Revelation? Revelation 19 in particular. His dominion shall be taken away, be consumed and destroyed. And then verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and his dominions shall serve and obey him. The greatness of the kingdom shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Now, I believe that's applicable to everybody in the church, but I want you to know, notice who Daniel has been talking about throughout all of those, this book. When he refers to the people of the saints of the Most High, who is he talking to? Who's he talking about? If 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 you're if you're a, an ancient Israelite and you hear Daniel refer to the people of the Most High, any question in your mind who that is? No, not at all. A Jew reading this prophecy would have an understanding about maybe I have an inheritance that is. Every First Peter one went in my tabs. Maybe, maybe I'm part of the exiles of the dispersion, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, and maybe I have a living hope. Maybe I have an inheritance that is imperishable, and so on. Do you think these people might have thought about Daniel seven as they read through some of that together? I think they would have. But the point being that when Rome destroyed Jerusalem, this is the way that I think this happens, because it does not actually say that. They will destroy, they will kill the little horn. It's not what it says. It says about the little horn that his dominion would be taken away and consumed until the end. It doesn't say anything about him. It says his dominion is taken away. In ancient times, how did you destroy a god? How did you ruin the influence of a god? Well, you destroyed the nation that worshipped him. If you want to destroy uh, Nebu, the, the god after whom Nebuchadnezzar is named, go destroy the Babylonians. If you want to destroy Ra or any of the other Egyptian gods, how do you how do you do, how do you defeat them? How do you show that their gods are no good? You go to, you go capture you go capture Egypt, and so on. That's how you do it. Okay, when when the Philistines thought they had conquered Israel. 
They went into the into the uh, um, uh, they went into the house of God. They pulled the um, uh, tabernacle. Or they pulled the uh, ark of the covenant out, and they took the ark of the covenant and they put it in the house of I believe Dagon, their god, and they thought they had conquered Jehovah. That's how you do it. Okay. When Rome moved against the people of the Most High, the Jews, and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, what should have happened was that the worship of the Son of Man, the worship of Jehovah, the worship of the Ancient of Days, what should have happened is that should have diminished. And what should have happened is that the Roman gods, and so the Roman emperor, because he proclaimed himself as God, spoke against the Most High. What should have happened was he would have been recognized as the overall authority in the world without question, and the worship of this Palestinian, Jewish, localized God that we destroyed should have gone away. It didn't happen. In fact, just the opposite happened. The stone that struck the image in Daniel 2 started to grow. And it started to fill the whole earth to the point that the book of Revelation announces at the sounding of the seventh angel, not only is the mystery of God finished, chapter 10, but in chapter 11, he says the kingdom of this world, Rome, Greece, Persia, Babylon, whatever you want to call it, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Why? Why or how, maybe a better answer question, how did the kingdom of the world become the kingdom of the Christ? Because what was realized shortly after the ending of the Great Tribulation, oh, wait a minute. While God sealed the tribes of the sons of Israel, as Romans says, a remnant will be saved by grace. And here it is. Here is your remnant saved by grace out of Israel. Jerusalem shall be trodden underfoot until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, Luke 21. Romans chapter 11 says, this blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, we are going to rise up. Or we we are we are going to um 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 lost my train of thought there. Um, we are going to um uh, uh uh continue this persecution against the Jews. This tribulation is going to continue. Jerusalem is going to be trodden underfoot, and this this is going to happen and continue until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then Jerusalem is going to fall. And what Vespasian and his general Titus do not realize is that when they destroyed the house of God, when they destroyed the house of Jehovah, they unleashed not the, they, they didn't destroy the national presence of Jehovah. What they effectively did was to unleash, to decouple the glory of Jehovah from Jerusalem to the entire world. And unbeknownst to them, for 40 years before they moved against Israel. What was happening was that the Apostle Paul and others were spreading through their kingdom, 
through their empire, sowing the seeds of the kingdom, planting tent churches that were growing in size and increasingly becoming more and more Gentile. That church was being persecuted by the temple in Jerusalem. The only thing holding back the growth of the kingdom as God would have it was the restraining influence of Israel that was trying to make the Gentiles become Jews, the doctrine of the Judaizers, the doctrine that is being rebuked and refuted throughout Romans and Galatians. That was the problem the church was under. At this point, it's not Gnosticism, it's not paganism, although those influences are certainly there. The fundamental problem is the Jewish connection that it has. And that's why Jesus says to the Jews in Luke 21, when you see Jerusalem circles with armies, look up for your redemption is drawing near. You are about to be bought out, removed from, pulled out of that dying corpse of Judaism. And Rome comes in and wipes it off the face of the earth. And you could see Vespasian and Titus going, we're done with them now. No more problems from the worshipers of Jehovah. And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples and languages. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Christ. How long until you avenge our blood on those that dwell on the earth? Here's your answer. The vindication of the faith of everybody who was martyred for the name of Jesus, who gave their lives for his testimony, the vindication of every one of them. That's what happened. And when Jerusalem fell, fell rather, the power of Rome as the dominant kingdom in the world ended. Now, they didn't know it yet. They wouldn't realize what had happened for hundreds of years, maybe. But the Christians did. Do not forget. Remember the predictions of our Lord's, of our Lord, and of his apostles. That in the last days, this is exactly what was going to happen. This gospel of the kingdom would be taught among all nations as a witness, as a testimony to the glory of the Christ. Then the end will come. What Peter is telling these individuals here is that you need to hold on. In this last time, at the end of the age, in the midst of these various trials that are going to afflict you for a little while, when he comes with his angels with the glory of the Father, when he comes in judgment of the people that are bringing these trials upon you, when he comes, your faith, the tested genuineness of your faith, it survived. It held on during the greatest tribulation the world would ever known. When you get to the other side, your faith is going to result in praise and glory and honor. 
or to borrow the language of Daniel 7, you will receive dominion, the kingdom, and the greatness of the kingdom. The glory that is to be revealed, the redemption of the body, Romans 8. All talking about the same thing. The answer will be made. How long until you avenge our blood on those that dwell on the earth? There's your answer. So I believe that is what he is talking about all through this section here in verses 6 and 7. So tomorrow we will pick up, Lord willing, at the beginning of chapter 8. I certainly do appreciate your participation and attention in the class today. Uh, we are very much uh, uh, always appreciative of that and looking forward to uh, continuing this study with you tomorrow. Uh, Truth Tuesday is not on today, as I said earlier, uh, but uh, Tony Brewer will be on with Aaron Dotson uh, after an hour's break. So at 11 o'clock, be back here if you're able. Uh, be ready to participate in uh, a Tony and Aaron's class at that time. So I will say good day to you. Uh, and uh, at least for me, I will see you back here this evening as we continue the Connect online meeting together at 7 o'clock Eastern time. Been my pleasure. Thank you. Sorry about a couple of little technical difficulties throughout the day today. Uh, live streaming is fun. So uh, I do appreciate you, though, and we will see you back here, Lord willing, tonight. Until then, as always, it's my prayer that you will go out and make your day a great one for God. Have a good night, everybody.